So from day one, our coach struck the fear into us, how to best run in track and field. I was in seventh grade. I had no business being in track and field. I know you're sitting there going, he doesn't look fast, and you are right. <laughs> but I was there, and um, you know, the first thing that they showed us, the first thing that was of utmost importance is let's learn how to run the relay. Look, I knew who I was, so I was only half listening. I'm not gonna be running the relay. They wanna win, right? So I'm not really paying that close attention. Well, you know, we go through our practices. First meet comes around and they say, Kale, we need someone for the relay. I'm like, oh boy, here we go. You know, they could have put me first, right? First is easiest. You run, you hand off the baton, that's it. But no, they put me in the third place. So I'm trying to have to navigate this. And the number one thing you're not supposed to do is what? Drop the baton. Well, listen, from now to the day I die, I will maintain that it was not my fault, okay? <laughs> See, my friend says that I dropped it. I say he just had a bad pass, right? So there it goes, it falls, falls into the other lane, we're disqualified, you know, it was his fault. But anyways, today I want to talk about what it looks like to pass the baton. And, and so what, to do so, I want you to turn over in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. It's, it was in the video you just saw, and we'll talk about that here in just a minute. Uh, again, I want to welcome you. I hope you have felt right at home, especially if you're new with us here this morning. My name is Cale Courtright, one of the ministers here, and we are honored uh, by your presence to be here. Last couple of weeks, I've been gone. I went um, on a trip to Israel, and I hope to share all about that with you over the coming weeks and months. And not today, though, but other, other times. And um, because of that, though, I, I do have a pass, I heard, from anything that I say. I'm still jet-lagged, so... There's a big asterisk on all of this this morning, right? If, if you think something sounded wrong, it probably was, but that's okay. Hebrews chapter 12 is one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. The, the writer of Hebrews has been for 11 chapters building to this moment, and he has this word, therefore. And after this comes this moment for you and I. This learning that comes out. And so for the next three weeks, we're going to look at the book of Hebrews. We're going to be anchored in Hebrews chapter 12. We'll go back and look at some of the things that the writer has been talking about. But to start, let's start in Hebrews chapter 12 this morning. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. I love this passage, as I said. This year, our theme is Fix Our Eyes, and it comes out of this passage. And I would ask you right at the front end this morning to do something. Over the next three weeks, memorize these three verses. My guess is that you know a lot of those phrases in there already, that you have heard this before, but commit these verses to memory. This is, to sum up, a lot of what we think and believe here. This is our theology. This is who Jesus is. And I really love how the writer here describes Jesus. Fix our eyes on Jesus the pioneer and perfecter of faith. He is the beginner. He is the first. He is the completer of faith. He did it. Other versions might say he is the trailblazer. He is the one who goes before us. The only reason you can have faith 
this morning is because of Jesus, because of what he has done. That's what the writer is trying to lay out for us this morning. I love how it talks about Jesus, and we'll talk about this later, but Hebrews is all about Jesus. It's all about the greatness of who he is and what he has already done in your life. Now to, now to start this morning, I want to go back one chapter, and I want to talk about Hebrews chapter 11 this morning. If you were to go into my grandparents' house today, you would find in their kitchen 16 8 by 10 pictures of their grandkids, two for each grandkid. I promise you they did not consult with an interior designer on, on what they put up there. But you walk in, and all along the top, you see all of these pictures. One from grade school, and one from the, uh, our senior pictures, their grandkids. Now, you might, some of you in here might be asking, why would they do that? And the grandparents in here might be going, of course we would do that. What else would we want to look at? Now, have you ever asked yourself, stopped and asked, why do we put up pictures? Why do we put up pictures of family members in these moments? There, there might be memories that you want to hold on to from a moment, from something that you did. You might put up pictures of family members as a way to remember, as a way for your kids to say, this is who you came from. This is how we want to live. You know, in, in the ancient world, before Jesus even and, and long after Jesus, if a loved one passed away shortly after, you would take a plaster and while it was uh, still soft, you would put it on your loved one's face, and you would let it harden. And, and you would peel that off, and you would keep it as a way to remember what your loved one looked like. And, and over the years, you would pass this on. And it's where a lot of um, the, way you, the reason you know what people from the ancient world look like, because they've taken those plasters. They've taken those, and they made sculptures from it, and now you know what they look like. But imagine if you had generations worth of loved ones and you took those plasters and you put them on the wall in your house and what would it look like it would look like clouds this is your cloud of witnesses this is where you came from this is who you are and this is what the writer of hebrews in chapter 11 wants to do he wants to remind you who you are hebrews chapter 11 verse 1 says now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance of what we do not see this is what the ancients were commended for. If you grew up going to church, you went to Bible class, you know, at some point along the way, the teacher would ask, now what is faith? How do we define that? And you know, there's that one kid that just knew. He had Hebrews chapter 11 memorized. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance of what we do not see. Now, I will say that this is a good definition of faith, and it really serves the purpose of Hebrews chapter 11. And there's other ways to describe faith. This does not fully encapsulate all that it means to have faith. But the writer here has a purpose, and we'll get to that. This is what the ancients were commended for. Who commends the ancients? Who reads these examples and commends them? Now, I would argue you and I do, that as we read these, these are heroes of the faith all throughout Scripture, all throughout history. But also, it's God who commends them. That God has his saints throughout history. These are people that he lifts up. And I want to talk about those people this morning. Now, faith is something that, as we get into that I want to talk about for a second. Last week, what we celebrated on Easter, that is the reason that we have faith. That our inward reality, our ultimate reality has changed because of that 
moment in time. It was a day in history that you went to the tomb and there was no body found. And that has changed everything, church. That that has changed our reality. But just like Alex was telling us in communion, it doesn't stop with that. It's not just that your sins were washed away. It's not just that your ultimate destination has changed, but that this leads to our outward reality has changed. That we live differently because of what Jesus has done. That everything that we do, everything that we are in our life has changed because of that. We, we live different. We take risks. We live boldly in faith because of that moment. This is who we are. So the writer wants to talk about faith. And he wants to use these examples throughout God's history to show you what faith is like. And to start, I want to start with Noah in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of righteousness that is keeping with faith. Now, I don't know how you think about Noah, but oftentimes I think about Noah in much different terms. I think about Noah like we might teach our little kids, right? Like, think about this cool boat that they built. Think about all the animals that went on there, what, what you would see and hear and even smell on that boat for all those days. And this is how we talk about Noah. But, but if you go back a little bit, Noah's faith is because there is a moment in time that God says, start building a boat. And he looks outside and there's not a cloud in the sky. Why do I need a boat? And see, your faith will be, some, will be very similar to this. That there comes time in our life, there is a moment in your life that you have to choose. Will I trust God or will I trust my eyes? Because sometimes they don't line up. Sometimes what you think you see, God's calling you to something different and you have a choice to make. Which one will I follow? Or beyond that, you, you might have the world putting something ahead of you. Because Noah had the same thing. He had people mock him and make fun of him. What are you doing? Why are you carrying the umbrella to work? There's not a cloud in the sky. Will you trust the common sense of the culture? Will you trust your own eyes? Or will you trust God? And it's credited to Noah as faith, as righteousness, because he trusts God even when his eyes tell him something different. And church, you too will have the same choice. This is what it means to trust God. This is what it means to have faith, is to trust him even when everything else that you see, everything else in your world tells you to do something else. It made no sense. But the question you ask yourself today is this, are you trusting your own eyes or are you trusting God? And the writer continues in verse 8 and he uses the example of Abram, Abraham. Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, he obeyed and went, even though he didn't know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land, like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. He was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Now, if a God came to me that I did not know, this is Abraham's story, and said, it's time to move. I'm not so sure I would go. I certainly would have questions. Uh, why? What's wrong with this land that I lived in, that my family lived in? What's wrong with right here? But Abraham doesn't do that. He gets up and goes. And it had not struck me before reading this, that our patriarchs of the faith, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, 
they do not see the promise come to fruition. Now, part of Abraham's promise is Isaac, and he does see that part. He does not see the land come to fruition. He does not see the generations multiply as God promises. He sees Isaac. That's what he sees. And he does it anyways. He goes. And this passage also struck me. Something that had never struck me before is that that God calls him to another land and they stay, he stays as a nomad. He lives in tents. That they don't even get to set a foundation. They don't get to, to build a permanent dwelling place. Abraham is called and he goes. And he lives as a nomad the rest of his days. And I think, again, it comes to us as faithful people today, and we, ask, we have to ask ourselves the question, where is God calling you? It might be somewhere quite literally and physically to go somewhere, but he also might be calling you out of your comfort zone to do something that, again, doesn't make sense, that you would not choose to do, but God is calling you to do something different. And will you stop and ask questions or deny, or will you say yes when God calls you? Because In Hebrews chapter 11, the faithful journey obediently. They go with God, even if it doesn't seem to make sense. So ask yourself this morning, where is God calling you? Later in chapter 11, he'll use Abraham again as an example and say, By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promise was about to sacrifice his one and only son. Even though God had said to him, It is through Isaac your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. This part of Genesis is one of the more difficult passages to talk about, right? Because what kind of God asks you to sacrifice your son? What kind of God gives the promise of Isaac and then says, well, let's sacrifice Isaac. And he puts that before Abraham and Abraham says yes. Abraham does not know the end of the story. He does not know what you know. And he reasons, if God would give me this son, then God can raise this son. Think about it for a minute from from God's point of view. I think it's hard for us to understand, but God is coming to Abraham. And he says, Abraham, will you enter this covenant with me? Abraham, will you be my people? Because, see, I tried it with Adam and Eve, and, and they let me down. Can I trust you? Abraham, I've made these promises to you, and you've even seen one of them already, but will you withhold that from me? Will you put me number one, Abraham? I think he asks you the same question. Will you put him number one, or will you withhold certain things from God? That when God asks you something, are there certain places that you would say, no, God, you you can't have that? whether it's something in your own heart, in your own family, in your own desires, that I think God will ask you for those things. Abraham is tested through sacrifice, and he says yes. He reasons there is a resurrection because if God promises it, it will come to be. And he's right. So we ask ourselves today, what do we do when God calls us to sacrifice? When faith gets difficult, do we continue, like Abraham, to say yes? I encourage you later to read the entire book or chapter of Hebrews chapter 11, to read about these saints, because what they do is they lead us to a place that calls our faith into question. 
and asks, do you have faith like they had faith? And there's three aspects that I want to put before you today. Three things that we see in these examples that our faith needs to include. And the first is this. Faith leads to a different kind of life. We are called to live differently. Now, you can use the word holy if you want, but we're called to live righteous lives. That God puts us on a path, and it's, it's a different kind of path than the world lives. We're called to live differently, to have his set of morals and values and life. And it's, it can be different. In the Old Testament, you almost always saw two words together. You would see righteous and you would see justice. And I think that's the life of a faithful person. Is that not only do we think about our own actions, whether we are doing right or wrong, but that we also look and we try to right the wrongs. That we want to be the kind of people that when we see injustices in the world, we stand up to them. We, we live for the marginalized and the oppressed. We want to set the world right. Just as Jesus taught us to pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The church, as the faithful, we're called to be co-laborers with him, to bring heaven to earth. This is our current reality. We're not just waiting for a day to come, but we want to build that world here and now. That's what it means to be righteous. That's what it means to be faithful. The second is like it. Faith is about doing, not just believing. Now, let me be very clear. What you believe matters. And we talk a lot about that here, of how to believe correctly, because your beliefs do lead to your actions. However, if you go back and read Hebrews 11 today, go read all of it, almost 100% what you will see are the saints throughout history. You will see their actions. But Hebrews 11 does not give you what they believe, though you can infer what they believe. It doesn't give what they're for, what they're against, how they vote, any of that. What you see is what they do. James would later write it this way. In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. But some will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. Just as Alex said, and communion. We take what we believe here, what we remind each other through song and encouragement and word, but we have to live it out. Believing one thing doesn't matter. It's all about your actions. I wish we could do this experiment, so go with me for a second today. Imagine we were writing Hebrews chapter 11 for our church. Now, I think we would have a lot to write about because I know you and I know what you've done. But ask yourself the question today, if the world could not know what I believe, what I'm for, what I'm against, what would they see? What does my life show them I believe? Because for better or for worse, church, your coworkers, your neighbors, your family, they know what you believe because they're watching how you live. They see your actions and it is giving them a message. And so ask yourself a question today. I'm a faithful person. But what do those around me see? What actions do they see out of my life? We want to be people who live out our faith. That's who we're called to be. And lastly, faith will require sacrifice. It's going to happen. There's going to be a time in your life that God calls you to give up everything. 
That God calls you to not withhold anything from him. Now, Lord willing, it won't be like Abraham's sacrifice. But he will ask you to give him everything. I mean, Jesus says this over and over again. If you would withhold anything from me, you need to drop it. Those who would be my disciple would pick up their cross. You can't hold anything else, church. You have to let everything else go. Faith requires sacrifice. And often it requires suffering as well. And Jesus would say this too in Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven for the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let me ask you this. The last time you endured suffering for the name of Jesus, the last time you had to sacrifice something that you really didn't want to sacrifice, what was your response? Was it to rejoice and be glad, as Jesus calls us to be? I'll go first. No, it wasn't. (laughs) Jesus calls us to rejoice and be glad because you're being counted worthy of walking in his footsteps. Paul, too, would pick up the same idea that suffering and sacrifice will be part of your journey. This is what it means to follow Jesus. And what do we do when these moments come? Because faith is filled with triumph and it's filled with tragedy. When somebody accepts Jesus in his name and we clap and we cheer and we surround him, it's a moment of triumph. There will also be moments of tragedy. Moments that we sacrifice something, that we suffer, that we give something up for his name. What do we do in those moments? And I think this is when the cloud of witnesses really matters. This is when scripture is such a great gift to us. Because church, there's nothing new under the sun. The way that you're called to sacrifice, the way that you're called to suffer, there has been one before you that has sacrificed in the exact same way. And so we go to scripture and we come into our community of faith here and we lean on others who have gone before us. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. You can face anything the world has to throw at you. If you're looking for inspiration in your own journey, then look no further than the end of Hebrews chapter 11. It reads this. What more shall I say? I don't have time to talk about Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went around in sheepskin and goatskin, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. Since God had planned something better for us, that only together with us would they be made perfect. What a haunting line. These were all commended for their faith. Remember, faith is being commended for what you do not see. These were all commended for their faith, Yet none of them received what had been promised. But it's not the same for you, church, because you have received what has been promised. 
You, church, have received Jesus Christ. You, church, have something that is far better than they could even imagine. Jesus, that's what Hebrews is all about, the greatness of Jesus. He's better than angels. He's better than any hope you have, any covenant, any promise, or any sacrifice. Jesus is who you have. This allows us to possess his inheritance, that we have this hope. We lean forward in this hope. And church, it's your turn to run the race. It's your turn to receive what has been passed on from the great cloud of witnesses. Now, I told you that I'm not a big runner, but a few years ago I decided to do a half marathon. And so if we want to talk about suffering and sacrifice, I could talk to you all about the training for that. But on the day of the race is a fun day. Almost the whole time there are people lining the entire 13 miles. And they probably didn't write the signs for me, but I took it as for me. You know, you can do it. You can do it. And the whole way you have encouragement as you run the race marked out for you. And church, that's what your faith is like. That you have this cloud of witnesses, you have this community of faith, and you are running the race marked out for you. But you don't run alone. You have people encouraging you every step of the way. You have people running with you. But church, it's your turn to take the baton. The world is watching how you will run. Will you fix your eyes on Jesus? As I said, you don't run alone. So our shepherds and their wives, they will be around the room today as we close. We want to pray with you. These are people who have gone before you. This is part of your great cloud of witnesses. People you can lean on and trust. That's why we have the body of Christ today. And so church, as the world watches, the challenge and the encouragement this morning as we go out from here is to lace up your running shoes, is to grab that baton and to fix your eyes on him and sprint towards that finish line of glory. The world is watching. How will you run in faith? Let's stand and sing.